the shit you love. The podcast of the series of the graphic novel of the album where I get to crap on about anything I like. Hello, dear listener. We're near the end. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. A thinly veiled attempt to conceal my real purpose. To sit you down and bore you shitless with the not very important stories of my not very important past. I've enjoyed myself thumbing through the pages of my brain's diary. It's been a bit of a non-white knuckle ride, but it's given me some giggles. Which, frankly, has been the raison d'etre of my entire life's work. So it's too late now to be apologising. And if you're still here, dear listener, it means you're indulging me. Maybe I shit you, but you love me. I hope so. That's the theme of the penultimate episode of the web series. My best attempt yet at trying to write a love song that doesn't just make me curl up in shame at the falseness of it all. Love is obviously the emotion that drives all humanity towards some kind of action and often, sadly, destructive action because of love begotten or love spurned or love denied. So I guess it excuses so many hundreds, thousands, millions of pop songwriters from spending their entire careers writing songs about the same subject. Love. It just used to amaze me that criticism aimed at my former famous band often settled on the lazy argument, they're a one-joke act. That claim is actually disputable, but let's say it's true. Well, who in pop music isn't a fucking one-joke act? To most people, lyrics in pop music are of secondary importance. The vast majority of pop music, even your serious artiste, gets away with sheer bloody daylight robbery in lyric writing. If it's not about love, it's about not a lot, really. It's like the lyrics I used to write way back in I Can Run. Sort of loosely about something, but deliberately vague so it seems more poetic. When this approach works, it can be evocative, and in the time-honoured claim of a thousand musical charlatans, it allows the listener to put their own interpretation onto it, and therefore have a much richer experience. The pigeon leaves the hand of the artist and turns into a dove in the mind of the listener. Yep, good. And then there's the other 99% of serious pop songs where the lyrics are just interchangeable gruel. The best thing that happened to my creative life, and not coincidentally the thing that brought me a small modicum of modest success, was the moment I stopped all that shit and started writing about something. It wasn't always good, but at least it wasn't hiding behind poetry. I didn't start writing in a humorous way because I went, I'm going to write comedy. I did it because that's the way I look at the world. That's my form of expression, man. Humour. That's me being true to myself. As terribly wankery as that sounds. But, of course, the minute you start adding humour to the mix, it switches the mind of the unimaginative listener, and they assume it's of less intrinsic value, of less importance, that it has no meaning or purpose other than to win a cheap laugh. The same kind of small mind also thinks that if the lyrics are in any way more clever than bog-standard rock sub-poetry, then it follows the music must be of secondary importance. Wrong again, Thimblebrain. Still, 
That tended to be the attitude of the critical fraternity when that other band of mine started to appear, and was probably the attitude of a lot of the record-buying public who sneered at that band while popping on a Nick Cave record. Fortunately for me, there were a lot of people who didn't think like that, and no matter how much we would shit them, they still loved us. It is to those people, past, present and future, that I tip my cap in thanks. It's why I get to make music, why I get to do this self-indulgent podcast. I owe it all to the success generated by that former band of mine, without which I would be in a far less interesting and fortunate place. I'm certainly aware of that, even as I continue on to the 17th year of my solo career, a career almost as long as that former band of mine. I continue to walk a difficult line when it comes to that band. I'm not sure I can articulate it even to myself. I'm proud of what we achieved, but not so much that I want to publicly luxuriate in it. I feel personal pride in my contribution, but it doesn't feel like my band. It feels like someone else's. A collective. And even the me in that collective is a different person to the me now. And that's one reason why I've always tried to shy away from talking about that band in public. Tried, but not succeeded. I've failed spectacularly on a few occasions. I did a whole segment on Double J talking about my former band's place in the good old 90s with Zan Rowe, who was charming and lovely and had every right to expect me to talk about that subject. Not Zan's fault. But I can't listen to it. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. I'm breaking my promise to myself. Why did I do it? I thought that it would help people find out about me and maybe check out what I've been doing for the last 17 years. If Double J aren't going to actually play any of it, then at least the listener might make the effort themselves. That's what I told myself. I also told myself that trying to deny the existence of that band or just omitting to speak of it is fucking ridiculous behaviour, actually more arrogant and pretentious than speaking about it. And I still think that. But it still makes me feel rotten discomfort. Part of that is my distaste for being wheeled out as some relic from a bygone era to wax on about the good old days. Fuck, I hate that shit. I also feel a bit like I'm taking credit for someone else's work, as I mentioned before. And that makes me feel a little ashamed. I know, I know, it's not someone else's work. But it just feels that way. There's also another part, which is the phrase Damien from Tism. Why does that bother me so much? Why is it the leash that I constantly strain against? Well, clearly it's nitpicking semantics, pointing out that no one of that name was ever in that band, but it's more the symbolism of it. That band did things in a certain way, including never breaking out of character. Whether that character was 99% the real us, it was still a character. Listen to any interview and you'll get the sense that those guys are constantly on. The persona never wanes. The metaphorical mask never drops. And while that may have annoyed some journalists, it's what set that band apart from every other band. It's what made that band's interviews more interesting for the listener than fucking Joe Blow going on about the creative inspiration behind his new album. Notice me talking about those guys as if neither of them was me. Yep, dear listener, that's no accident. I'm not that guy. 
I'm a lot of that guy, maybe 99% of him, but I'm not him. Hang on, that's a bit rich coming from the bloke who wrote I was the guy in Tism, isn't it? Where do I get off wanting to have my cake and eat it too? Dining out on the name, sorry, there I go with the food imagery again, while simultaneously whining about wanting to divorce myself from it. Yep, listener, again, you're right. It's complicated. I was the guy in Tism. No, really. I was the guy in Tism. No, really. I wrote the bits you like, but not the bits you hate. I wrote the bits you like, but not the bits you hate. I wrote that song because I was sick of trying to deny my connection with that band. I was so sick of it, so annoyed at trying to conform to an unspoken rule created by my former band, or at least created by myself, because that's what I assumed the band was thinking. That I wanted to not just break the rule, but do it in as blatant and disrespectful way that I could. Of course I was joking when I sang, I wrote the bits you like, not the bits you hate. But I got an immature pleasure out of singing it because, well, that's me. I really fucking hate being told what to do, even if nobody but myself is telling me to do it. I had followed that rule with varying levels of success, or should I say failure, throughout the short career of my first band, Root. It's ridiculous, an absurd position to take, that I should deny the connection with my former band, deny the success I was part of creating, out of some principled purity? Righto then, Tim Rogers... You're going to change your name and get plastic surgery so that any future success you achieve, you'll know it was 100% due to the innate quality of your new work. That's a bit silly, isn't it? But I started out thinking I would try to do it. And because I live in the real world, I found out very quickly that I would have no career whatsoever if I denied it. Root's first gig was on a Sunday afternoon multi-band bill at the now sadly demolished Spanish club in Fitzroy. Do you think I would have got that gig without mentioning what band I used to be in? As if. On a bill with so-called emerging young bands, including the soon-to-be-briefly-famous Little Red, who's going to give a gig to some bald, middle-aged cunt in a cowboy hat who claims he's special? Maybe I might have found some venue somewhere who would have put me on a bill where I could play right down at the bottom to no one. And yes, I could have worked up a reputation based on the sheer quality of my work. But how long would that have taken? It certainly would have taken lots and lots of nowhere gigs, sheer weight of numbers, law of averages to find an audience. If that even worked, maybe it wouldn't. So... No, I didn't do that. I dined out on the success of my former band. I used it to get early gigs, which then meant the connection would get mentioned on handbills and posters and in the media, and then the word went into the wonderful world of social media, and then I had no control over it. But for the duration of Root's brief career, I never quite knew what position to take, which meant a sort of clumsy half-denial, And I got so sick of doing it and so annoyed at myself for doing it that I started the new band, the DC3, with a song called I Was The Guy In Tism. I was the guy in Tism. No, really. 
I was the guy in Tism. No, really. I wrote the bits you like, but not the bits you hate. I wrote the bits you like, but not the bits you hate. If I'd done some kind of media statement, it would have sounded ridiculously self-important. So I said it in a silly pop song, which just said it and hardly mentioned anything else about the subject. And I'm very glad I did it. I'm sure there'd be someone out there who could argue I took the self-serving, weak option, and, you know, fair enough. But I'm comfortable that I did it, and my position is this. I reckon I deserve to dine out on being the guy in Tism, but I don't like talking at length in public about that band because, for a few reasons I mentioned earlier, it bothers me. And also, I am human and a bit grumpy, and I get slightly grumpy when people talk to me as if my career stopped in 2004 or whenever it was. I understand why they do it, but I still reserve the right to choose to be grumpy occasionally. If you message me on Facebook and just say, where can I buy a TISM t-shirt, like I'm a TISM memorabilia customer service desk, then yes, I am overly precious and overreacting, and yes, you can get fucked for starters. So, having attempted to articulate that inarticulate frustration I feel when someone asks me to comment on TISM's latest re-release and I can't properly explain why the answer is no, let's go back to the Spanish club, Sunday 17th of June 2007. We're going to start this happy vibes right from the root. I can't overemphasise how weird that felt stepping out on a stage for the first time in 23 years as me. Of course, I was still slightly disguised. Root started out ostensibly as a country-flavoured group, and because we particularly liked the kind of cosmic country rock pioneered by Graham Parsons on the first two Flying Burrito Brothers albums, I thought it would be cool if we togged up in the gear, a bit like Graham and the chaps on the cover of The Gilded Palace of Sin. We couldn't afford rodeo suits tailored by the famous nudie cone, but there used to be this fabulous cool store in Greville Street, Paran and Oxford Street, Paddington called Route 66, which imported cowboy and rockabilly gear. So we had it up and sported the ornately embroidered Route 66 shirts and suits, Later, my wife Jane did a lovely arty take on the nudie suits, like a cross between nudie and Noel Crombie. It suited what we were about, but it also made you feel good stepping on a stage. Starting a career, and that's what it felt like, as a middle-aged man with no hair and a slight paunch is a somewhat dispiriting thing. But I suited up and crossed the Rubicon. I'm not sure how much extism had leaked out there, but there were one or two faces in the darkness that I recognised. It was a rainy, freezing Sunday afternoon, and a small crowd stood about 20 feet from the stage. So, stepping out there, I felt the only way to go was go hard. Pull the mic lead out to its full extension, walk over the lip of the stage onto the floor, and stand a few feet from the closest person, eyeballing them the whole way. Well, we survived. Apparently, according to a few eyewitnesses, we were actually not bad. I did have pretty decent reinforcement, all thanks to my partner Henry Graber. Henry is an enormously talented musician. 
He was the unofficial eighth member of that former famous band of mine on its last couple of records, playing saxophone and a lot more guitar than even the members of that band would realise. I'm not sure if Henry has ever reached the peak of his ability, but I saw firsthand how good he is during our work together. The reason Henry is so good is that he has this kind of natural ability. You know how some people are good at every sport they play? Henry strikes me as that, except in creative stuff. And he had none of the handicaps that come with ability, like an obsession with technical excellence. Henry was super creative. He used to sit there in my dusty old shed in my old house among the dynamic lifter and gardening tools and just take a nascent song into a whole new territory with some crazy guitar idea that was almost always perfect. We'd be recording a new demo or even working on a well-rehearsed song and he'd embark on some new flight of fancy on the guitar, unable to get to the end of the section without making mistakes because his brain was going too fast for his hands. But you could see his mind working. also a hilarious guy and completely unpretentious. You just don't get that with people of his talent. I'd like to think that if he'd been around at the beginning of that former famous band of mine, it could have been fantastic. But he's got a big personality and there were already too many of them in that band, so it mightn't have worked like my rose-coloured imagination thinks. Henry came along at just the right time for me. Without his talent, his friendship and his giant fuck it, let's just do it personality, I might have never had the guts to do it. We did some really good stuff together, which I think stands up. Shazer and Michelle, they got to be strong, yeah. They led into temptation down in Babylon, yeah. SMS, your vote judge's decision is final. Will they one day be worshipped as an idol? Through Henry, we recruited Steve Pay, who was a lovely guy and a beyond brilliant keyboard player. And I brought in Dougley Robertson, who I'd met when I'd hired as a voiceover guy when I was making ads at Triple M. And I found out that he'd been in the band Ice Cream Hands. Doug is a fine bass player, but what clinched it for me was his singing. Doug shares my obsession with harmony, and you can hear his amazing multi-tracked harmonies all over the work of Root, the DC3, and my solo album, Versus Art. Shut the fuck up. 
Speaking of which, that's a whole other story, the making of versus art, and how it led to the DC-3, which is maybe for next time. But for now, if I might do a little ambitious segue, that versus art album came out the same year as The Greats released the album Secret Rituals, and I started paying serious attention to them. Only the bits I love. I knew of The Greats before Secret Rituals. They were already well famous and all over Triple J, and I don't know, but I suspect that the identity they carved in their first few releases before Secret Rituals is the one slightly favoured by their fans and maybe even by the band themselves. When they were a band and friendship group of three people, Patience, John and Alana, their sound was brash and sort of punky and quite distinctive, and I did like the sense of fun that pervaded their music, but I didn't really give it a proper listen. But then they released Secret Rituals, and I heard Crying All Night, and I thought, these guys have written the perfect pop song. If someone is being fated by your Triple J's, that's usually a turn-off for me. But when I heard Crying All Night, I started really listening. And above and beyond my opinion of the greats' music, I always thought Patience Hodgson was pure rock star. Larger than life, funny, cool, glamorous, yet somehow relatable. The girl you want to be but just don't have the guts to. When I heard they stopped the band to do some serious parenting, I thought, what a great reason to finish a band. Serious brownie points. Okay, so let's fast forward. An opportunity came up to do a support slot for the greats come back to a gig at the Corner Hotel in 2018. Even though the money wasn't enough for me to pay my band adequately, I took it. I just wanted to meet Patience and John, and it was no surprise to find out they're the least pretentious, most friendly, down-to-earth people I've ever met in showbiz. So we did the show, it was a pretty amazing night, and then later in the band room... It felt a bit like asking my first girlfriend on a date, but I popped the question. And fortunately, Patience said yes. And, well, quite a few too many years later, now she's the voice of Only the Shit You Love. Only the shit you Patience and John, here's to you. And here's to you, dear listener. 
We've got one more episode to go. See you there. You've been listening to Only the Shit You Love, the podcast. If you want to see the series or buy the music, go to campsite.bio forward slash Damien Cow DC. See you next time. <laughs>